District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. I'm joined by co-hosts of the Your Mountain podcast, Nephi Cole and David Wilms, who've grown into friends of mine. I thought it was time to have them on District of Conservation after going on their podcast and all of us getting together in Wyoming a few months ago. So gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing what's on your mind about public policy, guns, natural resources, and whatever is trending. Gabriella, nice to be on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Anytime. So why don't you both briefly talk about what the aims of your podcast are, why you started it, and a little bit of your backgrounds in natural resources. Do you want to go first? I was going to say, do you want to go first? I can go first. I don't care. Uh, Do it. It's Dave's fault. I'll tell you what happened. Dave, we're sitting around the... We were sitting around some... um, the best Philly cheese steak place in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And there's a lot of competition, but, uh, and then Dave said, you know, we should do a podcast talking about this natural resource stuff. Been listening to a lot of different podcasts. We just didn't feel like there was anybody out there in the space. Um, we'd hear people talk about natural resource decisions and issues. And it just seemed like it was always from kind of a, an outsider's perspective. And we said, you know, at the time, both of us were um, senior policy advisors for the governor of Wyoming. And we said, you know what? We could probably do one from an insider's perspective. And so uh, Dave came up with this wacky idea and uh, a logo and a name. And it's all, all of that is his fault. And then sitting around in this eating cheese, greasy cheese steaks at this, uh, you know, we came up with the blurb, you know, the uh, everyday decisions are being made that affect your land, your water, your wildlife. You should know about them. This is your mountain. And that literally came out of sitting around eating cheesecakes and uh, or cheese steaks. And uh, we uh, we started a podcast. We had to get permission from the boss at the time, uh, the chief of staff and the governor of Wyoming. We had to we had to promise them we wouldn't use our full names and tell people where we worked. And so for the first year, you know, it was still to this day we don't talk about where we work at, but we couldn't say, hey, these are all, all three of these clowns weighing on natural resources are senior policy advisors for the governor of Wyoming. So we just kept that kind of our little secret, and we did this podcast. And actually, I think the thing that's funniest about it, and you didn't, you, you mentioned that we had to, uh, we had to get permission and we did get permission from the chief of staff for it. And we later recorded a podcast with our former boss, the governor, and brought this up at, at his response. You guys were doing this while you were working for me. Like he, like he never, <laughs> yeah, knew. he had no idea. It's like, and I know, I would have said no. <laughs> chief of staff exactly. was too nice. He he laughed when he said that, but he's probably right. If we would ask him directly, he said, like, it's a terrible idea. Just knowing, you know, at the time, you know, we were dealing, we were talking about issues like Bayer's ears. We were talking about, um, you know, Native different. Species Act. Yeah. Stuff that was yeah. um, very impactful to the state of Wyoming at the time and to our office. And so we had to be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, if, if people knew that these are the governors, these are the three of the guys that are like the guys in the governor's ear talking about these things on this other forum, um, you know, it, it would have been very interesting. And, and uh, having said that, you should, everybody go listen to the Your Mountain podcast and you can hear what we were saying for uh, at least the first six or seven months of the podcast while we were working for, uh, still working for Governor Mead. And you guys have had a lot of success so far. You've had some big heavyweights on the show. You've had what, Stephen Ranella and some others, lawmakers too, and just pretty important people. I think you had Randy Newberg on your show recently, right? 
We did. Yeah. I think we were very lucky to, you know, some of these folks are, honestly, these are friendships that we had before we ever did podcasts. And so we've been very fortunate. Um, you know, Steve was our first uh, podcast it was with Steve and it was kind of a quid pro quo. He'd had us on his podcast prior to that um, two times talking about, you know, policy issues. And so we said, well, we're going to start a podcast. We want you to come on our pack podcast. And it was the same thing with Randy. You know, we've met Randy Newberg at different functions and we knew him. And, and uh, you know, most of our guests are relationships we had before. Um, we were very lucky to make new friends like you, Gabriella, um, through, uh, you know, acquaintances in our, in our new, you know, new jobs in our new policy space. But uh, that's kind of, for us, been kind of the secret of the podcast is typically, you know, on these issues and talking to the people we talk to when we weigh in, these are relationships that we have and we kind of um, have always had those relationships. So it's nice to be able to kind of leverage those to get, you know, people and insiders perspective on a lot of the stuff that we talk about with regards to policy. I'd say, you know, that, you know, that media tree that you see out there sometimes of different media sources and their biases and, you know, being, you know, catering to the left or catering to the right or whatever in that, that pyramid, we like to think of ourselves at your mountain as right at the tip top of that pyramid, just like really perfectly right down the center, perfectly centered, just trying to yep. provide information uh, and, you know, really hit the contours of all the, uh, of the issues. So you understand, you know, what all sides are thinking about different issues. And, you know, sometimes our biases slip through, I'm sure, uh, but we really try and provide the, the full picture. Yeah. So we like to think we're the tip of that, 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 even though we're not really media, the tip of that media. <laughs> I like well, that explanation, the metaphor that's actually really concrete. That's your mountain. Very right symbolic. There. Yeah. 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 We are on the summit. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah. And when we were all uh, connected, I think through Mark Oliva first, Nephi, before I got to meet you guys last fall, uh, we were going back and forth about like, oh my gosh, we have similar like aims with the podcast. We tried to educate people about public policy, but also do interviews not related to public policy. And that's how we all kind of befriended one another. And I was thinking we could talk about a few public policy items from the federal level and even the state level that I think would be interesting to break down. I think maybe the first one I want to start with is this Arkansas bill that we were talking about earlier. I haven't really weighed in on this because I was thinking like maybe I'll have them talk about it too, or I need more expert opinion on this. But what what happened in Arkansas? Was it as threatening to revoking Pittman-Robertson funds as critics were saying? Like what happened there? Break it down for me and my listeners. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, Dave. You want to start or do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> you start this no. one. I'll probably start the next topic. You start this. Sounds one. good. Before I, 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 I do that, I do need everybody to under, to know something about Gabriella, which is when we started our podcast, actually, Gabriella, you didn't know this, but prior to the introduction from Mark, Dave had flagged your podcast for us as a group and said, do you, do you know this Gabriella Hoffman? Because it's like her podcast is exactly like our podcast. It's like, she's, She's covering all the same topics. Have you been talking, you know, do you? And I was like, no, no, we don't. And then suddenly Mark, I mean, literally it was within weeks that Mark, uh, all of us said, hey, you need to, you know, you should meet Gabriella. And, and it was just kind of, it was very interesting because we were, we were tracking you um, previously. And so in the nicest of ways, in the nicest of ways, in the nicest ways. And so on the, the second amendment, not in the creepy Act, way that it could be. Right. So, yeah. Um, so this, the SAPA Act in Arkansas, what happened is uh, throughout the nation this year, a number of states had legislation brought up that, that 
you know, it's been termed the Second Amendment Protection Act. It's gone through different names in different states, but in general, these have been laws that have uh, been bills that propose or end and laws that have passed um, that in some way or another have said if there are new um, taxes or fees or, you know, it's kind of a, a laundry list of things that are proposed that would uh, impede people from, you know, discourage people from purchasing firearms, the state uh, will oppose and will not pay said, you know, taxes and just there's a variety of language out there, generally two different bills. Um, so I think that's a short thing that people need to know is so one of these bills came up in Arkansas and a member of the Arkansas, uh, somebody who worked for the game of the commission there sent a letter to us fish and wildlife service, um, expressing concern and said, well, how does this affect Pittman and Robertson? Now, before I get to what us fish and wildlife service says, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is a great organization, probably the best in America, what they said about it, which is they said it it has no effect. And the reason is because the, you know, you're talking about individual taxes on firearms. As we all know, Pittman-Robertson taxes aren't paid by individuals. So these bills that identify these, in, these, these taxes that, you know, like a, basically a tax stamp, like if you were to buy a, a class four weapon or something, or class three weapon, they... That, you know, these, this would be an additional tax that the individual would pay. None of us pay Pittman-Robertson taxes. Those taxes are paid by the manufacturers, and they go to a national, you know, they go to a national pot. So, you know, the interpretation of that found of NSSF was these things, they're not a, it's not applicable um, because you know they they aren't paid by private individuals. They're paid by the manufacturers who are going to keep paying those taxes, and therefore. The concern, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service responded that, well, if a state isn't paying, if for some reason, you know, isn't paying their pitment, you know, their, their the, the tax, then therefore the act says, you know, we're not going to, they wouldn't receive their Pittman-Robertson dollars. And the response from, you know, I think from the industry, I'm sure from the firearms industry was, well, that's just never going to happen because, you know, people are, you know, the Pittman-Robertson, that excise tax all the people who have been paying that tax are going to continue paying that tax. So therefore, you know, states, you know, it's not going to result in anybody losing their PR funds. That was the, the industry's perspective. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services had said, well, if nobody, you know, it was kind of this, I mean, it really was a, a huge kind of uh, mental exercise. Of, well, what if this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. And, and I think Dave may correct me when I say, at the end of the day, it was a big nothing burger. Yeah. So, so what I, actually what I was going to say is if, if you step back from it for just a second. So in, in my career, I've represented state wildlife agencies as an attorney, right? And Pittman-Robertson issues are a big deal. And I will say that there are a lot of hunters that, that don't know how the Pittman-Robertson Act worked. Certainly, there are a lot of state legislators that don't. And so at the very least, any opportunity as a community that we have to have a conversation with legislators about the Pittman-Robertson Act and about how it works and the importance of it to, to funding uh, conservation wildlife management in the states and the consequences of actual diversions of those funds from those purposes. Like Those conversations are important. And I think this bill gave a nice opportunity to have those conversations without any real risk of losing the funding. 
Uh, and I think we, as a community, we should always take advantage of those opportunities to have those conversations and, and educate folks about the importance of, of the Pittman-Robertson Act. So that's you all bet. I'd add on to it. The, the other thing I would note is that these bills have passed in a number of states and not the exact Arkansas bill, but a bill very similar to it did pass in Arkansas after Arkansas you know, was concerned about the first letter. Then they added a, a date stamp that they thought, you know, and some other stuff. It made it more like Montana's bill. Montana's bill was about 90 percent smaller, but, you know, theoretically, you know, made the same statement. And so um, just be aware that they're out there. But for hunters, um, don't what, what I've told people very recently is like, don't let this issue become one that drags hunters into a discussion about, you know, federal excise taxes, because it's really just kind of a, it's a, it's somebody trying to make an argument that we probably don't, you know, it's not, that it's not a real argument. So. That's good to know. I wasn't really aware of what was happening with the bill, but I did see the outrage associated with it. So thank you for the clarification on that. I think another bill we wanted to talk about was um, the house bill in Montana that passed that allowed non-resident college students to pay the same, I think, license fees as resident students. What's the good, what's the bad, or what's what should people know about it? It's awesome. That's all that everybody needs to know. It's a great bill. Uh, kudos to Montana. Um, not a, I, I don't know which other states do do this. I, um, Dave can tell me. Um, I'm going to make Dave tell you which ones. But um, what Montana did is they saw you know this, this effort to recruit young hunters and to get people out hunting people looked at the numbers and what we know is if people don't, if, if you lose those college years hunting, if that's not a pastime that you're going to enjoy at that age, it's much less likely that people are going to get into it. It's a, it's a lot more of a lift if you don't start, you know, the, the older you get getting people to hunt. And so what Montana did is Montana said, look, you know, they looked at the population. They know how many licenses they sell, they sold in the, in that demographic. And what they said is like, let's just, you know, this isn't that many people, you know, we're, we're only talking about, you know, several thousand hunters anyway, why don't we let them hunt? And so they passed a bill that basically lets those students hunt at the same, for the same cost as if they were a resident. And if you're a college student, you know, you think about it, the difference between a $50 elk tag and a $500 elk tag, it's a big difference. And that's not the exact numbers of Montana, but it's, it's on that scale, you know, that's a, uh, but you know, so I think it's a great bill. Fantastic. I wish more states would do it. I think it's phenomenal. I think they, there are some states that don't have to do it. Right? And I was going to ask you that question, Nephi. I haven't been following this bill, but um, usually this is based on the, the statutory residency requirements of an individual state. And a lot of states have it set up now where maybe that first year of being a college student, you might not be able to, but every year after that, you'd meet the residency requirements and you'd be able to hunt as a resident. Uh, and so the 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 question I'd have in Montana is, was there some sort of actual prohibition on college students being classified as residents for purposes of hunting? Well, uh, what I will tell you licenses? is, is that it used to, this is actually, uh, this is actually returned to the way it was. So a decade ago or so in Montana, I don't remember exactly how long it was. They, they, they did hunt at the resident rate. And so back when Steve Rennell was going to Mont to, to, uh, to MSU would have to ask him for sure, but there's a pretty good chance he didn't have to pay that out of state rate. Well, at some point they made a change. And then that, when that change occurred, what we, what the numbers saw was like literally within that demographic, you saw about a 90% decrease, Dave, 
in people that would buy tags. So that, I mean, it was just, it fell off a cliff. People just, that demographic quit hunting. I believe and it. So, I couldn't and so buy, I couldn't buy ramen. Like, yeah. And, and so if you're a college you student, asked, you don't have a lot of money, right? So, well, yeah. so you asked, was it a big deal? What the numbers said is it was a big deal. And yeah. I don't know the, all the particulars with, you know, how the different stuff works in Montana in terms of residency. I do know that they had some really good graphs that showed up this massive plummet. And so what they what they did is they just reversed that and made it so that those, you know, those, those students in Montana are going to be able to get out um, and enjoy, you know, enjoy these activities. And especially Montana has got this really vibrant community um, of kind of these, you know, young up and coming foodies, you know, backpackers and whatnot. And I mean, it just made perfect sense. Like the fact that those people got kind of priced out was a real, uh, you know, it was a real disservice. And so it's exciting. Again, this is a Republican legislature that did it and the Republican governor that signed it into law. It just goes to show you, you know, these, these are bipartisan opportunities and issues. It doesn't matter, you know, um, you know, what party you belong to. You can, you can be all about creating these opportunities for people. And from a revenue generating standpoint, because I know there, there might be some it, it, some that know the funding models of states recognize that that typically non-resident license uh, dollars fund a large portion of a state wildlife agency and enable residents to have lower license prices. But in this instance, the the idea that it would be really cutting into the revenue um, based on what you've described is probably pretty slim. You're talking about a cohort of, of folks that just weren't hunting because the price right. point was so high that they just weren't buying those licenses. Yes, they so weren't going to participate. You're, you're actually creating a new revenue, one, a new revenue stream, two, a new recruitment stream for hunting, and three, and this is probably a stretch, but maybe not for a guy like me that is like a, is a super passionate hunter. Um, that might be a recruitment tool to keep me in the state after I graduate. <laughs> you know, depending on the state, if it if there are great hunting opportunities. Like that is one of the main reasons why I live in Wyoming is because of the outdoor opportunities, right? Uh, and the hunting opportunities. That would be a, a big recruitment tool for me to in Montana to want to stick around if I knew that. Uh, I start learning places, hunt uh, these places, and at a at a resident license fee. I'm like, man, maybe I want to stay here after I graduate. That's a good incentive. I wish other states would do that. Like here in Virginia, that could sell pretty well. Um, although our out-of-state or non-resident exchange is not super ridiculous um, from what I see, but I know out West, it it tends to be a lot more expensive if you're a non-resident. Yeah. So another topic we wanted to talk about was maybe how sportsmen were very pleasantly surprised by some of the findings and conclusions reached by the new 3030 or the America, the beautiful plan which I think a lot of us have been critical of. I know I have, um, but I was very astonished to see the emphasis on voluntary conservation efforts and private property rights, and even the inclusion of input by sportsmen and women. I didn't think that with this administration. We'll see if it holds up, but what are your guys' thoughts on this? Are they taking sportsmen's input seriously, or could we see some changes? Um, um, What's your overall thoughts, both of you? Yes, so I'll start this one, Nephi. Uh, okay, for so a couple of things. One, yeah, it it struck all the right notes, all the right chords, right? It's it, this is the way to do conservation in the United States. Is as I look at this uh, rollout, if it's if it's implemented the way the report describes, right? It's locally driven, 
Uh, it's voluntary incentive-based. It recognizes property, private property rights. It, it very intentionally says this will not be a land grab. It very intentionally talks about concert, you know, restoring and, and making more resilient uh, landscapes as opposed to, to locking places up and throwing away the key. I mean, it's, it's striking all the right notes right there. It's, it, and so, uh, and, and then as far as does it take the input of, of hunters and anglers, I think look at this in two parts. So right before, I think it was right before the rollout of this, the administration came out and expanded hunting opportunities on uh, national wildlife refuges in the United States to the tune of 2.1 or 2.3 million acres. Right. Um, and, and so you look at that uh, and that, you know, that expansion of hunting opportunities on national wildlife refuges. And then you read this report that that mentions mentions hunters and anglers and the important contributions that hunters and anglers have made to conservation over the past hundred plus years. Uh, and I think you, you're starting to see some consistent messaging coming out of the administration that the voices of hunters and anglers actually really do matter uh, and that they really are conservationists. So I, I think this landed in a good place. Uh, and certainly there were a lot of skeptics uh, out there um, because it was unknown, right? What is, first of all, I'm not using the term 30 by 30 anymore, uh, because I think there's a bad brand to begin with. Uh, so I like the rebrand, uh, to begin with and calling it something else, um, other than 30 by 30, but nobody knew what it was. There was this mention of we're going to do this. And then there was no indication of what it was, was. So there's the multiple months long vacuum of space and people just filled it and it gets filled with all kinds of, um, fears, because if you don't have something, the first place people's minds tend to go is what's the worst that can happen, not what's the best that can happen. Uh, and so hopefully this dispels some of those concerns and now the devil's in the details, right? How do we take it from this report and all the good that's in this report and actually move to an implementation phase that follows through on these commitments and is locally based, locally driven, uh, you know, place-based work and, um, and, and works on invasives and fire management and you know, all of those things and creating opportunities and access for all Americans uh, everywhere. So yeah, that's, I guess that's where I'd land is um, definitely definitely pleased with where this landed and but but with the hey the devil's in the details we still don't have a definition of what conservation is yet we got to figure that out uh, and then we have to implement it the right way nephi what are your well, thoughts say, on it so first of all i think secretary vilsack needs a huge you know everybody needs to recognize him and he needs a needs deserves a lot of credit for kind of the rebrand and the direction that it's gone and, and the thought process on it. And if folks probably remember that Vilsack, this isn't his first rodeo. Um, he's been secretary of agriculture before. And prior to that, he was governor of a little state called Iowa. And so um, he understands farmers issues and he understands private landowner issues. And I think that's why you see, for example, the National Resources Conservation Service, you know, have a huge role in, you know, in, in work here and, and that, that the direction that this is taking now of really uh, emphasizing, if not in their entirety, but at least to a great degree, um, private lands and volunteering incentive-based conservation, that really comes out of U.S. Department of Agriculture. It comes out of the, the recognition 
that most of our country is private land, you know, and that um, as Aldo Leopold said, um, the future of conservation is on is on private lands. And so I think that what they're recognizing is that if you're going to do this, the way to do it is again, NRCS, for those of you who don't know, it's a really unique federal agency because it doesn't, they don't own any lands. The only thing they do is provide technical assistance and financial assistance to people to do conservation on, on private lands. And so um, they really emphasized, you know, that type of approach, which is basically rather than telling people how they're going to conserve, people usually do a better job of conservation. If they can look at their own world, they can look at the things they're responsible for and they can say, okay, well, I'm willing to do conservation. How, what, how do I do it in a way that works for me? And I think that that approach um, is the approach that's the most successful is allowing, you know, if you're asking private landowners to basically fund conservation by providing, you know, their lands, their cost share, you, you better give them a voice in it. And I think that this new proposal, you know, in doing that is, is going the right direction. And yeah, I, I, I think finish that's it up with, oh, sorry, Gabriel. No, 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 you're fine. Go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to say that my, my final point on this is I've always taken the position that good conservation isn't partisan and shouldn't be partisan. And regardless of the political party, if, if somebody does something the right way and well, we should say, bravo, nice work. And then, um, and then hold people accountable. Right. And, uh, and make sure that that work is done the right way. So I guess that's, that was the last note I'd make is uh, I really do believe that, that good conservation isn't partisan. It's not a partisan yeah. issue. Dave is absolutely right. And, and, and I will say one more thing also, Dave, that is there's always been this concept when people look at, you know, regulatory actions on conservation, what people forget is that environmental, these environmental benefits, they really are public goods. They're something that we all enjoy. And so when we expect private landowners, people who own something to basically change their actions or to, or, you know, to forego potentially potential earnings or to, to plant certain crops and things like that, we're really asking those people to help to, to use their private funds, their private lands to, to provide a public good, clean air, clean water. And so I think that's why this approach is so important to remember that, you know, if we're going to ask people to do that, the best way to, to do that, it isn't by forcing them to provide a public good on their private lands. It's by collaborating with them as partners. And, and again, kudos to, to Vilsack and the folks in the administration who have recognized, you know, that partnership as being a necessity and are moving that direction. Yeah, it remains to be seen, but that was kind of a surprise, interesting angle to it. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, um, <laughs> to, to see what comes out on the energy side. I'm a little more worried, um, with some of their stuff, but that's for another discussion, but let's, let's talk into, let's move into something maybe more lighthearted. Um, here on the East coast, we're about to be overrun by cicadas. I call them cicadas cause I'm from California, but cicadas, I guess is the, the proper pronunciation, but the Brudex cicadas, cicadas, are starting to emerge and everyone is very fascinated with their nutritional value and putting out recipes. I don't think I'm going to partake in that exercise. I don't see a need to. I've heard it's not really good. I don't know. Um, what do you guys think about that fanfare? A very satisfying crunch. You know, I would say that with the cicada. <laughs> now, I've never put one in my mouth, but I know that when I hit one with a car or step on one, I mean, it's really got some texture to it. And I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that's, 
What it doesn't isn't there some kind of a saying that texture is fifty percent of how food is anyway? I don't know. I'm just yeah, I could be making that up. Um, look, I'm not a foodie by any means. Uh, you should see what I put into my stomach every day. I would have no problem giving it a go, giving it a go, uh, but I don't need a big recipe book. Like just deep fry a little it. salt, just yeah, a little salt or deep <laughs> fry or whatever. Like try it once, try it once. Uh, I think they're a little prob- like probably peanuts. just once. Is the only, you know, once every 16 years maybe is enough, right? Because that's not how a, often this happens. If you could get 17 box, years, like five guys, you know. Like, you know, five guys has like the box of peanuts that you like, you just, if you could just get a, just a big box of them, you could just, you know, put them in it's, a little cardboard thing and eat them while you're waiting for your burger. You know, it's really easy for Nephi and I to sit here and say, we'd, we'd eat them. No problem. When we live mm-hmm. 2000 miles away from where they are. <laughs> you know, yeah. You should try them. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you try them, Gabriella? And oh, tell gosh. us how they taste. I don't know what the rule is. Can you pick them up and just randomly eat them? I figure like. But they're not endangered, obviously, so I wouldn't be violating the ESA. To, but right, Dave, you don't you don't need a tag. No, just pick them up, pop them in your mouth. Oh my gosh, no big deal. Eating them raw would be at least cooking them would be at least maybe one way to do it. I don't know, like I maybe deep fried. Go. Deep yeah, fried, it's got to be. That's what I said. Deep frying makes anything oh taste the same. So it, it all just tastes like grease at that point. So yeah, deep fry it or and hear me out or you could kebab them. I think mm. you just run mm. them on a kebab, rotis them on the grill a little bit, uh, put them, sprinkle hairy? them over a salad. I think, I think, I don't know. I think you're onto something. I think it'd be, do they have little, I, do they have little hairs on them? Probably. I not. haven't taken a look yet as to whether or not they do. Cause you could, the, cause the, 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 the cooking over a spit, if you will, Dave's right. That would give you the opportunity to kind of, you know, cook some, you know, char some of that off of there. So you just get the, so you get the satisfying. It's on audio. Don't worry. They can't see you. Of... <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, I think what you should do, Gabriella is yeah. I, I need to I, take one for challenge. the team. Here's my challenge to you. Right. And you have to report back to all your listeners. I think you need to do this. I think you need to go cook some of these up <laughs> and you need to report back to your listeners uh, and give a like a one star or five star review on uh, how cicadas taste, right? There's gonna be like there's so you know the thing these days, uh, um, locavores, right? You know the yeah, you know, foraging, all that stuff. Like you want to you want to locally so- source your food source. You can't get any more local than the windshield of your car. Well, I'm gonna say that I know that some of the guys at Mediator have occasion listen to the your mountain podcast i'm gonna guess that puts them in the listenership uh group for 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 your podcast as well gabriella so the thing to do is to pretend like we have done it and then and then somebody meteor will feel like they have to do it as well and then they'll report and then we don't actually have to taste them we can just act like we have and then we'll get feedback from somebody else on whether they agree or disagree so i'm gonna say they're delicious and everyone should have that experience as no, I well. Think, Gabriella, you need to be a trendsetter. Oh, you know, no. Report back out on your podcast. That's not how That's I my want my podcast to trend in the Dollar top bet. <laughs> no. Dollar bet. You can't. Dollar bet. I'll mail you a dollar. No. Dollar no. Bet. I'm just. I don't the bet. Thing to do is, Gabriella, you tell, you tell Dave that you've done it. And then uh. you see if he concurs. Like, hmm. They were actually surprisingly delicious. Um, kind of an, uh, kind of a. A little bit of a floral note is what you tell Dave. And then you see if Dave, 
Would you agree is what you say? Look, and you I, send Dave a box full of cicadas n- and then we'll see what Dave thinks. <laughs> so Nephi knows this. Like I burn, like I burn for incense on a regular basis, sage grouse droppings. Right? And so I, and I frequently experiment with wildlife droppings to see what has a good scent or not. Most have terrible scents. Uh, but we know everybody's just, he's weird. Moose and sage grouse smell great. So uh, what I'm saying is like, there's my weird thing. Uh, now you need to have yours, Gabriella. And that's going to be eating this. Oh, I don't know. I'm, and if you want, I'll send you some sage grouse droppings that you can burn as incense (laughs) to help set the ambiance for while you start eating. Like this will be just, this will be really raw, like a really raw experience for you. This is the best oh idea for a long time. Oh, I don't no. have to do anything. Dave's sending stuff. You're eating stuff. I'm just listening because I already know that they're delicious with kind oh of a gosh. floral note. You oh, try no. It. it just sounds so disgusting. I feel like I would vomit if I ate them. <laughs> I'm not as adventurous as you guys. Well, I guess we'll hey. find out when you report back. <laughs> Gabrielle, I just want you to remember what this kind of stuff has done for Joe Rogan and just realize that like the future is yours. Like, Oh no. You need to put it on your YouTube channel. Oh, you think so? Oh my God. That would go viral. You need to record yourself cooking and eating these with sage grouse incense burning in the background. (laughs) And I'm I'm telling you, you'll go viral. Tag Rogan. So it's like, Oh my God. You know, yeah, and then what that would be my way to get an invite to his show. Yeah, you say, do yeah. you you still got it? You put it that way. Fear factor, still got it. And then you can just be eating cicadas and just tell them they're way better than elk. And oh, I don't know. That would be, uh, I don't know. I don't know about better than elk because elk is really good. That would be really hard to, to I guess, claim. I get, again, well, there's the only idea, one way to find out. Yeah, you just throw it out there way better than elk. And then you're going to get all these comments where people are going to have to eat cicadas to be able to prove you wrong. See? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's lying to my audience. <laughs> you're, you're making assumptions. Oh, you know what it means to assume know. something, right? You may, Hey, who knows? Just give, you might like it. Eat a little nibble one. And Ugh. I mean, I would, if I could get one, but I just, I can mail you them. If you're really adventurous, yeah. we can dry them up and, and are you send sure it your you way. Can? That might be Dave. Probably you, wrong. I'm not going to encourage anything illegal. Offense for me, you know? Can you? Can I don't you think bail? that's a. I don't think that's a Lacey Act violation. Send no. Em. Send them. Send them. <laughs> we expect this. Your Mountain Podcast. Um, I appreciate it if none of them are alive, but bag us up some cicadas. We'll eat them on the air. Dave, <laughs> we'll eat them on the air. Yeah, I will. Oh a little bit of ladies and gentlemen. Dressing. Yeah. Yep. Done. That's why well, I'll look into it. If I collect enough, maybe I'll send some, as long as it's not in violation of the Lacey Act with transporting I think, them. I, I think, um, find this is enough all of them. I think you say find enough of them. Listeners. I think you're going to be able to take a snow shovel out there and scoop up thousands of them at once. Oh know? my gosh. Yeah. Stacey, this is coming out next week or when we put this out next week, it'll be around the time they're supposed to really, really emerge. Um, but thanks oh, for wait. challenging me. <laughs> I'll at least record them. I don't know if I'm going to eat them, but I'll at least like record their emergence. And if I collect enough, maybe I can send you guys some FedEx them. <laughs> we'll, we'll cook up a meal together. We'll <laughs> we'll do some sort of joint YouTube thing where we. I can't wait. We do it. Oh sometime. gosh! Oh, you guys I'm very are excited. <laughs> and I think maybe something we can conclude with is in out your way, closer your way. 
it's tourist season in Yellowstone National Park. And I saw this video of this woman getting way too close to a few grizzly bears. What are your thoughts on that? And and why do we continue to see these people going viral for the wrong reasons? Well, the reason they keep going viral is because everybody's surprised by it and you can't look away. It's like you say like a train wreck, you can't look away. I mean, hey, is is anything more of a train wreck than a person walking up on a grizzly bear? I sort of, I sort of have this theory, and I, this, I'm, I'm, this is a gross generalization. Here's, this is my theory. We have this gigantic. We talk about the urban-rural divide in this country a lot. Right? At least I know Nephi and I talk about it a lot. And I'm absolutely convinced that 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 people that grow up in really, really urban environments and don't spend a lot of time in wild places see images on the news about Yellowstone and about the wildlife there. And this, like I said, overgeneralization. So I hope your listeners don't get real mad, you know, if they're living in cities and saying, no, we don't think this way, uh, but go to these national parks and almost think of them as a zoo, right? That these, a park, that these park. animals mm-hmm. are, are almost tame. Um, they haven't been exposed to uh, true wild, you know, these large wild animals before. Maybe they have, but, uh, and then they get, and then there's that excitement factor of, seeing something you've always wanted to see. And, and now you're seeing it in this place where there are lots of people around and you feel like, oh, well, they're pretty tame. They're used to people. It's not a big, it's not a big deal. I can get close. Uh, and it just never ends well for anybody because they're still wild animals. I disagree because I enjoy the videos. Oh, I didn't say I didn't enjoy the videos. I'm just kidding. We've been known to joke about things sometimes. And if somebody did get hurt by a grizzly bear, we'd feel really terrible when people get mad at us. And so, um, and yes, we have gotten in trouble at your mountain for joking too much about stuff, but it literally it's too bad when people do it. We don't enjoy seeing the videos, so don't do it. Why they continue to do it. I have no idea, but it's just one of those things where you're like, you, you know, it's almost unbelievable it can end in tragedy, which is really sad. And at the same time, you're left just kind of scratching your head, trying not to laugh about it and say, how could anybody do that? But then yet they still do it. So and, and don't do it. Here's, here's the, the last piece. So you have the, you talk about the grizzly bears and the charging, but I think my favorite story ever that, is, that came out of Yellowstone National Park about tourists and wildlife was the, the family, I think they were from Canada, uh, that saw this. Uh, baby bison yeah, and didn't, didn't see the mother around anywhere and thought it was abandoned. And so they just put it in their minivan and drove off. I'm like, that is a great story. It took, and I, oh, it's yeah, true I remember that. That's right? crazy. It, it's, it sort of blew my mind. And that happens all the time, actually, uh, not just with bison, but it happens with deer and elk. And, you know, because about this time of year, they're dropping calves, they're, they're giving birth and, for the first couple of weeks, these animals have to stay pretty tight because their legs aren't totally under them yet. They can't run real fast uh, and they have to be, stay pretty hidden. And so their mother While might be someplace eats. else eating yeah. and they might leave the baby, you know, a quarter mile away and it might look like it's been abandoned, but no, it's actually very strategically left in these places. So please don't pick up, you know, baby deer don't. or elk or bison. Yeah, don't. And put no them matter in how minivan, cute they are. No matter how cute don't. they are. It's like everything else in a national park. This thing does not belong to you. Uh, leave, leave only. What is it, Dave? Like leave, leave no trace. Leave, yeah, yeah, leave only. Leave only footprints. Take only memories or pictures yes. or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yes, but don't leave too many footprints either. I, 
And I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I realized that was a, just a gigantic gross overgeneralization that I made, uh, you know, this urban rural, but I do think it's just a a mindset of some people that just have not been, it it could be some rural people too. I like to call it people. It's a Disney mindset. It's not an urban mindset. Yeah. That's a a better mindset. Anthropomorphism. It is common here. So I take back my urban rural piece. It's more of a, the Disney effect. I think that's the right way to put it. Mm -hmm. I mean, but living here close to the city, it's amazing how many people are so removed from wildlife. Um, And when they see deer for the first time, they're just like in complete awe and shock and foxes too. I'm like, you guys never have seen wildlife. Like where have you lived? It's it's, like, you know, you you can eat that. But you know, (laughs) there's a gigantic percentage of this population that doesn't even have a local park within 10 minute, a 10 minute walk. And so Mm. we, we, I think sometimes we forget that there's, there are a ton of people that actually don't have easy access to the outdoors all over this country. And we're really spoiled like Nephi and I, where we are, Mm. we've got to be some of the most spoiled people in the country that just have all this magnificent wildlife and open space at our fingertips whenever we want it. And I think we forget sometimes that there are a lot of people that wished they had that and for whatever reason don't, right? And and just haven't had that exposure. You'd be surprised now, actually, many cities, maybe because I've lived in the DC area for a long time, goes to show I've been here too long, but there are a lot of priority or prioritization of green space. So like you can find a park, you could see wildlife even here on this side of the Potomac, um, pretty commonly my neighborhood, for instance, or like in downtown Alexandria facing Washington, D.C. and across National Harbor, you see like large carp and catfish and ducks and different things. And there, there's a lot of green space here. And I think other cities are starting to have green space more so, maybe aside from New York and Los Angeles, although Los Angeles has lots of coyotes and mountain lions. So it's not like you don't see wildlife in the cities, but it depends on which city you live in. But I think cities are now increasingly starting to prioritize green space. And um, even with development, I think now species are adapting a little bit better. Um, more more cities should have plans for reintroduction of coyotes and and, uh, and mountain lions. Bears. I <laughs> so I'd like, uh, I'd like to see more of those in cities all over America because that... We always joke here about how we need to reintroduce some grizzly bears to Central Park. Yes. Or and DC. Yeah. I would love to see that. Um, but no, it no makes all, the walk, all kidding is <laughs> it makes the morning walk up way more entertaining. Like, cause you gotta be on your toes. You can't a little just, more stressful. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, you can't just jo- like, then, you know, it's not, I don't know that it's really fair that in the West here, like when we go jogging in the mountains, like we're supposed to carry bear spray and you're not, and it just seems like you guys should have to carry it too. In parts of Virginia, you have to, because we have black bears. We have actually probably one of the biggest populations. I don't know by how, what, what quantity we have black bears in, in terms of things here in Virginia, but we have a sizable population. And if you're not careful, you may encounter some black bears because black bears have been, there were some stories recently, right? A Colorado woman was uh, killed and then eaten partially by one, right? Am by I two, remembering? Yeah, by a, by, by two, a little they, family, little oh family of bears. Gosh. Yeah. I, I think they actually, uh, Parks and Wildlife killed two, trapped and, and killed two bears. That I, had, I believe they wow. killed three was bears, three but only that two had, of them had the that's human right. inside the bear. That's right. Ew. That's right. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh. Is it because, and pardon me for the ignorance of asking this, but Dave, you may know this from the or maybe both of you guys may know this, but like, is it because they've had the taste of human meat before that they would eat? meat or is it just like that's why I you have know, to, some fight or flight defense it, it can be anything right so um 
most most bears go through periods of time and, and it, there can be different populations of bears that respond differently. Some are eat more, uh, more meat-based, uh, diet than others. Some are more, uh, veg, uh, vegetarian maybe is the right way or ve- vegetable or plant-based omnivorous? diet, right? Omnivorous. Well, yeah, ultimately they're all omnivorous, omnivorous, but what I, I guess what I'm saying is there's some that almost exclusively eat plants. There's some that, that almost exclusively eat, uh, um, meat. Right. And then there's Mm -hmm. some that, that do a lot of both. And this could be a situation where, you know, the timing of the year, for example, they're, they're just emerging from their dens. They've been in hibernation for months and are looking for food and are looking for anything they can get caloric intake. So it could have been simply a, uh, a need, a need to eat. It could have been fight or flight. And I think we just have to wait and see what the reports that the agency sends out say, but it could be anything. Well, yeah. interesting thing about people is we forget. I, I actually really like to remind people, you know, we actually still are part of the part of the food chain. And um, when you're dealing with wild animals, you know, they're not typically as civilized as us and don't realize that we've put a lot of constraints and rules on how they should act as if they should act like us. And, you know, so, uh, I mean, if you're when you're dealing with wild animals, literally, no matter where you live, just remember, they're still wild animals. It's not a Disney movie. Um, be aware that they may or may not decide that they want to eat you. And like, you can't always do something about that other than stay away from them and just respect them. Good advice. Yeah. You don't want to get close to them, especially if it's young, young cubs with their mothers nearby. There's always a mother nearby and same with even deer. I've had a doe come to my backyard. I haven't seen any babies yet, but I'm assuming she's getting ready to give birth <laughs> if she hasn't already. So you, no matter how tempting and how cute it may be to see them, you do have to keep an arm's length distance from them. So fellas, where can my listeners connect with you, follow your musings? I think they're going to like listening to your mountain like I do uh, and, and, and follow the podcast on social media. But where can everyone connect and follow you guys? Yeah, I'll go ahead and take this unless you want to. Oh, Dave. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, you can you can find the podcast anywhere, right? So the name of the podcast is just Your Mountain. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, we we can be reached at Your Mountain at itsyourmountain dot com. Uh, so email us. We we try to respond to just about every email we get. Uh, even even the very critical emails. We'll respond to those. Which we deserve sometimes. Uh, and they, <laughs> are earned. sometimes. they are earned. Um, and then uh, you can find us on social media at, at uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook at the handle at it's your mountain. And then we have a uh, Facebook or sorry, we have a website that we're terrible about updating, but it's uh, it's your mountain.com. Uh, so that's kind of the, I think we actually have a YouTube channel but I couldn't even tell you what that is. Probably it's your mountain. <laughs> Probably it's your mountain. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's us. That's where you can find us. That's wonderful. Thank you guys again for coming on. I know we were going back and forth about recording, but Friday seems like a good way to end uh, a busy week. And I think this will be really well received. And I appreciate you guys taking time to dispense your knowledge and impart some cool advice and and to catch up and hopefully I'll get to see you guys soon. I don't know if you're going to have another media hunt um, coming up, but if, if that ever happens again, I would love to come and, uh, and learn more because both of you have taught me a lot about processing and uh, the nitty gritty stuff about venison. We'll have to do it. 
Yeah, absolutely have to do it again. And, and thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it.